0: Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I'll be joined by Lauren Hurl for the session shakedown segment. Lauren chats with Representative Laura Sebelia for our deep dive conversation all about the Affordable Heat Act. Later on, I speak with State Treasurer Mike Pichek about LGBTQ representation, participating in the 251 Club, and initiatives from his office that begin divestment from the fossil fuel industry. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT. YouTube and Instagram at BT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting vermontconservationvoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback, email me at jmarsh at Now I'm joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters for our session shakedown segment, where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. With crossover in the rear view, things have settled down a little bit. Now it's just a countdown to the end of the session to see what will make it past the finish line. Last week, we saw S-25, which is a bill that would regulate cosmetics and personal care products, textiles, and athletic turf from containing PFAS and other harmful chemicals, passed the Senate by unanimous vote. The bill would be nation-leading, and now it's up to the House Committee on Human Services to take it up, which we will be working very hard to see that happen. What else do we have updates on, and what do we expect action on this week?
1: Yeah, we're at the point post-crossover where our bills have moved from uh, in the House's case um, where they passed the 30 by 30 biodiversity bill and the modernization of the bottle bill. So um, those two bills are now sitting in the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee. Uh, They've already started talking some about the 30 by 30 bill, and we're going to be advocating that they move both of those, hopefully, Quickly and expeditiously, Um, the House now has possession of the housing bill, S-100, and we're going to be continuing to um, watch that bill closely, working to ensure that as they work hard to increase the availability of um, housing, uh, including affordable housing, that that continues to be uh, moved forward with smart growth principles at its core, Um, and that bill is um, we believe gonna be taken up in two different committees. There's a housing committee and the environment committee would be looking at kind of different pieces within that bill. Uh, the rank choice voting bill that again passed the Senate and now is already being taken up by the House Government Operations Committee. So we'll be watching that. Uh, and the other big bills that had moved were the transportation bill passed the House. And you know, it did have, as we've talked about before, some provisions like moving forward with our complete streets program to make sure that um, our roads are safe for walkers and bikers and not just vehicles um, and a number of other investments in incentivizing uh, electrification of our vehicles and so on Uh, so we are continue to work on that in the senate uh, and making some improvements to that bill And the budget also passed, which, of course, is the only really must-pass bill. And two provisions just wanted to note that we've been watching closely. One is funding for um, our environmental justice uh, for positions to implement that program and that important work uh, where a bill was passed last year. And now we need to actually invest in the state government capacity to move that forward. And so we've been fighting to get that into the budget in an ongoing way so that those are permanent positions within state government. Um, And we've also been working to ensure that there's funding for a couple important climate workforce programs. You know, so hearing a lot about how we've got so much work to do to weatherize homes, install heat pumps, uh, do, you know, get new EV chargers, all this stuff. And how are we going to do that? Um, We are going to need a lot of workers. So there's some um, funding for programs and we're going to continue pushing for, increased investment in our climate workforce.
0: Yeah. And then there's S5, the Affordable Heat Act. You spoke with Representative Kate Logan of Burlington for the climate dispatch video, which folks can watch on our socials and on our website. But you also caught up with Representative Laura Sebelia from Dover, fresh after you gave testimony in her committee, the House Committee on Environment and Energy. So let's hear that now.
1: thrilled to be here with Representative Laura Sebelia, who has really been an unparalleled champion on the Clean Heat Standard last year and now the Affordable Heat Act. And I just wanted to start by hearing your perspective on why this bill has been such a priority for you.
2: Yeah, so coming from rural Vermont, um, you know, I've represented um Uh, Vermonters of lower means, um, Vermonters that are really isolated, and I have seen the effect um, of energy transition, of our telecommunications transition uh, in those parts of the world, and those folks get left behind. We know that uh, when things are changing, and there are a lot of things changing right now, both with climate change and, uh, you know, the shifts in our global economy, uh, we know that folks with means are reaching and engaging and ensuring they're part of that. And the folks without means or lower income are having a really hard time um, just uh, holding on, never mind engaging with these new opportunities.
1: Great. And so can you tell our listeners, so where is the bill now? And has it changed uh, significantly from your perspective from uh, what you all had worked on last year?
2: So uh, the bill, uh, over the fall and summer, uh, there was a considerable amount of work done on the bill uh, with folks who had um, concerns with it, folks that uh, thought it was great, including myself, uh, on how can we improve it? And you always can find means of improving it. Uh, That bill came in, it started in the Senate this year as opposed to the House, and uh, passed there and is now uh, in our committee. We've been taking testimony for three weeks on this. Um, It's testimony that we've heard, um, much of it we heard last year, and we know has happened in the Senate. This is a new committee, so it's good that we're kind of refreshing ourselves and reminding ourselves about the opportunity that's in front of us. Um, And we're hopefully going to be moving this bill out uh, next week. And I have to tell you, I'm really excited. Um, I am... I've been asking, um, I've been asking our fuel dealers, like, how can we help support you transition? Uh, for years, we now have this tremendous influx of federal funds that are here, um, and we have Vermonters that are paying two dollars more gallon for fuel. And when we talk about a convergence of uh, urgency and, uh, for action, uh, those three things right there, um, uh, pretty motivating. And I'm really thrilled that we're going to move this bill. We're going to get it done. It's really making my day (laughs) (laughs) that is
1: exciting is there anything you would ask of vermonters
2: that would be helpful in this moment yeah engage with this process so um it can feel complex there's a lot of um it's new uh it's a transition and we know when things change that creates stress whether it's good change or bad change and so engage talk with your legislators Uh, Talk with your fuel dealers, talk with um, advocates and the PC process, um, the public utility uh, process will be uh, open, engage with them. And we're going to get there. That is fabulous. Yes.
1: Huge priority of ours and really takes strong leadership and so grateful Mm -hmm. for all you've been doing to really helped shepherd this bill through Um, we'll continue at it with you as it continues to work its way through the process Um, but thank you so much for that and we'll check back in with you um, I'm sure later once we're hopefully over the finish line thanks for being here and for all of your work thank you take care okay and now let's hear Justin uh, talking with treasurer Mike Pichette
0: Mike Picek is Vermont's 31st state treasurer, having been elected last November. He previously served six years as the commissioner of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, or DFR, where he was first appointed by Governor Peter Shumlin in 2016. Mike also served as deputy commissioner of DFR's Securities Division, where he led the division's investigation into the Jay Peak EB-5 projects. Prior to his public service, Mike practiced law in both Burlington and New York City. Mike grew up in Brattleboro and resides in Winooski with his partner, Will, and English setter, Jetty. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Pichak.
3: Yeah, thank you very much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: First, please pass on my belated birthday wishes to Jetty, who just turned eight.
3: (laughs) just turned eight, yeah. So dog years, you know, it's like 56 or something, so... He had a nice birthday, though. It was a beautiful Saturday last week, and got to take a long walk with him. And uh, we also took him to PetSmart. (laughs) Wow! He got to pick pick some stuff out, and then uh, you know, we uh, you know, he did get a cake with with uh, whipped cream, which is his favorite on top. So (laughs) I love it,
0: and I feel like your Instagram is like. Both a Jetty fan club and then also, like, occasionally you post about yourself.
3: Yeah, well, Jetty's more interesting to post about, I think. So <laughs> it's definitely, he's definitely more photogenic, too. So I, I like posting about him.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, this past November uh, was pretty historic in the fact that you did not only did we elect you uh, an openly gay man into the office of treasurer for the first time in our state's history, but we also elected Becca Ballant as our U.S. House Rep, our first woman and an openly gay woman at that. At a Victory Institute reception uh, earlier this year, it was proclaimed that we are the only state to have elected multiple LGBTQ candidates at the statewide level last November. What does being part of that history mean to you?
3: Yeah, it's really humbling um, because I think back to when I grew up in Vermont and I remember very well the civil unions debate and I remember writing my college essay on the What I perceived as the courage of Governor Howard Dean to sign the bill, even though he knew he was running, it seemed like he knew he was going to run for president, and this was going to hurt him at that time that he signed that bill. Um, And I also remember even earlier being a page in Montpelier and watching Representative Bill Lippert be such an outspoken LGBTQ plus advocate, um, whether it was on civil unions or he was advocating for gay marriage Um, Whether it was employment discrimination issues, like he just was a very powerful and um, and courageous like uh, advocate and examples like that in Vermont have, um, you know, I, I really just respected and like got to witness firsthand. So it's humbling to think that I might be part of that history. I don't feel like, you know, I feel like they were the trailblazers. Um, I remember having a conversation with Bill Lippert about um, a regulation that we uh, enabled at the Department of Financial Regulation that said insurance companies cannot have a strict age restriction on gender-affirming care. So we had received complaints that insurance companies were saying you have to wait till 18 years old until you could have certain gender-affirming care. We said that's not allowed. It has to be driven by medical determination of a doctor regardless of age. And Bill Lippert saw that news release and he came up to me and said, you're now part of this tapestry, this history in Vermont. And um, I didn't, you know, for him to say that was like really uh, powerful. And, um, you know, so there's a lot, there's a lot of people that have really blazed the trail. And I feel like I am a huge beneficiary of that because i was I did not receive any negative reaction when I um you know ran as an openly gay person. I felt a lot of support and uh I don't think that would have been the case in, in previous generations.
0: Yeah I really liked that part of the tapestry it's a that's a really lovely way of putting it. Um so we're you and I are speaking right now. It's Friday April 7th Uh, It was 14 years ago today, in 2009, that the Vermont legislature enacted marriage equality. Um, And you fast forward to today, um, I just found out that four Republican representatives have introduced an anti-trans bill, H513, that would prohibit individuals assigned male at birth from participating in school sports that are designated for girls and women. Um, As one of our top elected LGBTQ officials in, in Vermont, do you have any reaction to this news?
3: Well, you're absolutely right. Like it's the anniversary of the override of, of gay marriage um, in Vermont. And, you know, I think of, of, like I just was mentioning Bill Lippert, other advocates, Governor Dean, like opening the doors and, and opening those pathways to being able to live your authentic self and authentic life. And I feel we have a responsibility to continue to do that for individuals that are marginalized um, today and and are are being really put under attack and having, you know, uh, vitriolic, um, negative uh, actions, words thrown at them. So it's disappointing to see that. Um, It's not something obviously that I think is necessary or something that I would support. Um, It's unfortunate that this this national narrative that I would suggest is being driven by fear or ignorance or both or other things or politics even, that it's um, come to Vermont um, because I know those legislators serve with transgender individuals and they are friends with, I'm sure, many transgender individuals and I'm friends with them and so to see that bill it's somewhat um just somewhat is a little sad for me at the same time
0: yeah i know i feel that i feel that a lot especially with you know some of the names on the list i was like oh my gosh I love her. Why did she do that? You know? So it's, it's interesting. And and I plan on having a conversation with some of them as well in person um, so that they can. Well,
3: yeah, I think that's a good point, Justin, because that's exactly my reaction um, that you had and we're probably talking about the same person. Mm -hmm. And um, but I think the, have the conversation is really critical. Right. And, and I think oftentimes on these issues that we feel so passionately about, I, and I'm guilty of this too. I draw a bright line, like either you're on what I perceive as the right side or you're on, you know, the wrong side And there. And if you're on the wrong side, there's, I can't, you know, there's no merit in your view or, and it's so easy for us to fall into those traps. And, and I don't mean that we have to um, change our principles or bend them, but we need to have conversation and understand and present our own viewpoint and do it in a way that, um, you know, they can receive and is receptive. Otherwise we're going to be like the national debate where we just are throwing bombs at each other and not working together. And I think the legislature's done a great job of avoiding that sort of national political narrative of, of disharmony and discord and, and inability to get anything done. I think they've continued to be able to, um, get things done. Even like just yesterday, I was in the Senate and they voted unanimously on a, Program called Vermont Saves that our office um, is a proponent of, and uh, that was great to see. And that it's a great piece of legislation, bipartisan, unanimous support. So we can do that in Vermont. We just got to make sure we maintain that and nurture that, not let those national narratives get into our state.
0: Yeah, totally. I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll email them, and and I I decided not to because I know I'll see them, you know, next week, and and we can just have a conversation. So. It won't be a fun conversation. It won't be exciting, but it's important. So um, so you live in a city that has an all LGBTQ city council and yeah. you are represented in the Vermont House of Representatives by Taylor yes. Small, our first trans legislator, and you call Winooski home. Is Winooski the gayest city in America?
3: <laughs> um might be right up there, you know, <laughs> certainly uh, in terms of the leadership and uh, and, um, you know, what uh, and 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 what um, you know, people feel comfortable being their authentic selves and stepping up and serving here. I think uh, it's certainly a, a community that's diverse in many different ways um, by age, by um, even native Vermonter versus you know, folks that have moved here to ethnicity. Um, sexual identity you know sexual gender it, it it really is a great melting pot um and are obviously our most diverse city in vermont and you know if we're going to have populations growing in vermont they're going to be by definition more diverse than what live than the people that live here now because we are one of the least diverse states as a whole so um i think it's can be a great example of how do you develop and nurture a community that um, people feel welcomed from all walks of life, um, that blends together, you know, generational Winooski residents with individuals that that came from another continent just within the last few years. And um, I'm really proud of our city and really love living here. And, uh, you know, Brattleboro is still home for me. It's where I grew up. But Winooski is, is certainly my adopted home.
0: Well, both are amazing communities and on the campaign trail, you get to see every community in Vermont because you took part in the 251 club, which I'm not sure if they've officially changed their name, but with uh, Essex Junction now becoming its own city, um, we, I guess we'll call it the 252 club um, just to be inclusive of Essex Junction. Did you indeed get to all 252 towns and cities on the campaign trail?
3: Yeah, we did. And um we called it the 251 plus 1 club. Uh, that's their tour. I guess that's how we called it. Um, you know, cuz we started when Essex Junction was not a city and you know when we finished they were. So, uh the 251 plus 1, but we called it the the road to victory tour. So, we ended in Victory, Vermont. Um, you know, population under 100. We went to um every town. I grew up here, spent a lot of my life here in Vermont, but there were so many towns I'd never been to before. Um, so it was a wonderful experience in a number of different ways. Like, first of all, like Vermont is so beautiful everywhere. Like that was the one of the big takeaways. Like it's it's different in its beauty, but you know, there are parts of Franklin County where we just kept driving around and I was like, I can't believe how beautiful it is up here. And uh, I just haven't spent time in like these sort of rural parts of Franklin County. And, and then in the Northeast kingdom, Like there were lakes that, you know, are very well known that just were just like, ah, like you're in awe when you see them. And uh, and you say, I want to come back here on vacation. Like there's no need to leave Vermont. We'd come here on vacation. And even Victory, like the Victory Bog, it was like one of the, you know, the last town we went to, one of the last sort of areas we we sort of discovered. And and it was so beautiful up there and quiet and rural. Um, So that was one big takeaway, just how beautiful this state was. Um, certainly, the conversations from a policy su- standpoint were very similar, like housing we heard about in every community we went to. Uh, we heard about people's concern around climate and climate change and how that's going to impact Vermont. Um, we also heard about childcare and, and how people are really struggling with that. So I guess the second thing I was surprised by was just how similar the conversations were throughout the state in terms of the challenges that people are facing. now. There are definitely differences in rural and urban areas, but you know, similar these similar conversations came up, you know, time and again. So for me, like the benefit, the huge benefit that I got was feeling really connected to Vermonters in Vermont, going into my term as treasurer. Um, you know, having literally put your eyes on every community, having where you could. There's some communities where people don't live, like Lewis, Vermont. But where you could, talking to somebody in every single community, hearing from their perspective about the challenges their communities are facing, about their perspective of Montpelier, um, about ways Montpelier could help, um, ways that their own community could help themselves if they had more tools or more resources. So that was really powerful and and very useful, I think, as a first-time statewide official to have that experience and be able to bring those voices and perspectives into the office. And I remember somebody, uh, the town clerk in Arlington, uh, down in Southern part of the state. Um, she said, uh, you know, it's great that you visited. We barely see people, but don't forget about us. So she said on the way out the door and, and we've made an effort like the, we've gone out of Montpelier three times since January, um, since being treasurer and, two of those times were down to Wyndham County and the other one was to Bennington County and we'll be in Rutland County on Monday. So we are making an effort to try to remain connected and to try to get around the state, you know, as best we can uh, on occasion as well.
0: Yeah. As someone who is also uh, working to get to all two (laughs) hundred and fifty-two communities myself, um, I'm curious if you staked out a plan ahead of time, or did you just kind of go based on where campaigning led you?
3: So we knew we were gonna end in victory. Yeah. And you know, that was pretty much the only roadmap. Um, I remember our first trip was up to Newport, uh uh, Vermont. And we went to Newport, uh, we went to Barton, we went to Troy, uh, we went to Hardwick and I think there was a fifth town. Maybe we only made it to those four towns, but we left at like six thirty in the morning. We did a full day, and we got home at like nine thirty at night and I remember I turned, you know, talked to our campaign manager, Isaac, and said, you know, we got this, like, we can't spend, we can't, this didn't work. Like, it was great. The visits were great. But like, if we're trying to get to every town, we went to four towns today and spent like 12 hours doing it. So we, um, I realized like we'd have to really embed ourselves in the communities that were further away from where I live in uh, in Winooski. I got the benefit of when I went to Brattleboro, I could stay at my parents' house um, but like when we went to Rutland County, we stayed there for like four nights and tried to find a combination of um events that were happening in the community that gave us good reason to be there. And then during the day we would go out into, you know, more rural parts of the community. We did the same thing in Bennington and we did the same thing in the Northeast Kingdom. So, you know, that was um even though it took a lot of time and it was a lot of time away from home, like that was a much better way of um both experiencing the community because you were staying there and spending time like overnight and and everything, but also um, just a more productive way of not spending so much time in the car driving to and from a community and just spending time on the ground. So that was our strategy. It was really embedding into certain counties.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great for those who don't know what we're talking about. I should probably prep like now. Now that we've discussed it, let people know the two fifty one club. Um, there's 251 now 252 towns and cities in Vermont, and the goal of the club is simply to visit um, each of them. Um, and so, yeah, I would encourage anyone to do it. As also a lifelong Vermonter, I had the same sort of epiphany that you had of of you know marveling on this place that we live. And um, and I obviously have I've been to a lot of Vermont, but I have not been to every town. So getting to discover new places um discovering their histories like i remember visiting dorset and how cool the granite sidewalks were and and the history behind all of that so um certainly would implore folks to check that out and and it's just a fun thing to to slowly plug away at Um, obviously you did it in one year so very impressive
3: (laughs) and uh, there is a 251 club as you mentioned so they have an annual meeting and uh it was we went to it during the campaign we weren't quite We were in the club, but we weren't to all the towns yet, but there was this packed. It was like two two or 300 people and everyone loved sharing their stories. And so do I, you know, you meet somebody that has done it or is trying to do it. um, And you say, well, how did you get to Lewis? Or what was your experience, you know, in in, uh, Glastonbury? Yes, I was going
0: to ask you about Glastonbury. (laughs) 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 It's impossible Uh, to find. (laughs)
3: Yeah, so we went down a road called Glastonbury Road and went all the way to the end of it. And then um, it became a dirt path that were for like ATVs. And we walked down it a bit and we said, I think this counts as being in Glastonbury. And we would have went further and sort of hiked, but like while we were in Bennington, we were telling people about we that we were going to Glastonbury and everyone kept telling us about how people disappear in Glastonbury. So um we said, okay, I think we could I think just being on the cusp of the uh, border is sufficient for us. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we lives there. Maybe like two or three people. So
0: it's it's fascinating. And it's still a town technically. So we're still unless they do away with it and we can go back to 251.
3: <laughs> yeah. And uh right next to it um is Somerset and if for anyone that's listening that hasn't been down that way, like there is such a beautiful lake and this beautiful dirt road that's really well maintained. I think it's even a forest road. Um, we stopped a number of times to take photos along the way because it just the sort of vistas were beautiful. And we ran into someone that was on a motorcycle, and he said um, that he was he was not from New England. He was from maybe Pennsylvania or something. And he said he makes an effort to drive up. To drive on this one road because it's so beautiful and well maintained for a motorcycle, even though it's a dirt road, and it's so beautiful what you see. So, yeah, that was a great that was a great experience to be able to um, just take in Vermont during the campaign.
0: Amazing. Um, so, you studied and practiced law before working for uh, the DFR, and now, of course, you're state treasurer. Does having a background in law come into use in your role as treasurer, and if so, how?
3: Yeah, I think it does. I mean, um, what I think the like the legal profession, what I found really helpful going to law school and spending time in the legal profession, but particularly law school, was um the the logical decision making that they force into your head and the logical um, you know, process of arriving at a decision. So, you know, sometimes in a policy goal you might say, Well, we want more childcare. And then you say well that's the goal but like what are the what are all of the steps to get there and then when there are decision points like what are all the what are all the negatives of a certain decision or what are all the positives of a certain decision and how do you um you know and how do they add up on the whole and what are the alternatives and why is the alternative better or worse than proceeding down path number one and so that like way of of thinking um is really useful in making decisions. I think it's also really useful in communicating, whether by in writing or orally, like to be able to to be as short and clear as possible. You know, that um, is something else that's sort of drilled into you in law school. So both sort of thinking through in those logical linear ways, communicating in the same way and doing it crisply and shortly, um, I think is hugely helpful for any policy Position, whether it's a financial one, whether it's a legal one, um, whether, you know, it's something that has nothing to do with either of those. I think those skill sets transcend whatever particular um job that you're in. So obviously they're effective for the legal setting and the legal profession, but I think they're really helpful and useful in the policymaking setting as well.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, did you have your eyes set on? being treasurer? Or like, what drew you to wanting this role?
3: Yeah, so I um, was interested in public service for, you know, a long time, I um, grew up in Brattleboro, my parents were not in politics. They were though, very heavily involved in the Brattleboro community. Um, My mom, when she was uh, six months pregnant with me, founded a soup kitchen with a group of people in Brattleboro. And she remains the volunteer director to this date, running the soup kitchen. And, um, she took a little bit of a hiatus when I was born, but she's basically been there for 40 years and she really has made it her life's mission to try to feed people in Brattleboro and to, you know, make sure that they're, um, you know, no judgment. Judgment free zone, just making sure people that are hungry get what they need. My dad was a is a CPA, and he's still working at a firm that he owns in Brattleboro. Um, So, you know, he helped a lot of small businesses. He helped them in a professional sense when you know they he you know he would take you know no pay or reduced pay for certain. Situations, but that wasn't so much what inspired me about my dad. It was more his community involvement. So, um, you know, he was involved in founding the teen center in Brattleboro that became the Boys and Girls Club, and uh, he was involved in expanding the golf course from nine holes to eighteen holes. Involved in bringing lights to the football field at the high school and raising money and, and and facilitating that, and particularly with the golf course one. I, you know, he didn't play golf and. He spent a lot of time uh, on that one in particular. I remember asking him, you know, I was probably 13 or 14 and said, you know, why did you spend so much time doing this? You know, it took away from uh, your job. It took away from being at home. It, You know, it wasn't, um, you don't even play golf. And he said that, um, you know, the Brattleboro community had given him and our family so much that it was the least that he could do to give back to it. And that was very powerful and, you know, really helped shape my perspective on what I wanted to do with my own life. I, you know, I, I worked in private practice as a lawyer, um, but it didn't motivate me. Um, you know, I wasn't feeling fulfilled and I always felt fulfilled in public service roles, whether volunteered or paid. And that is where my ambition is. Like, I love getting things done and programs set up that are going to help people. I really love when we can take an individual problem that somebody has and solve it for them, partly because they you know they just don't have the same knowledge of how government works or how different things interconnect. And for them it's like overwhelming and for us or for me, I might be able to see the, the two things that have to come together to help their problem. That's really simple because I just have had that experience. and that is so fulfilling to have that you know, to be able to, to do that kind of work for Vermonters. So, um, so I always was interested in public service when Beth Pierce, you know, announced that she wasn't running. She had told me that she was thinking about not running and that she really wanted me to, to consider running to replace her, which was very flattering. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'd been in government for about eight years or so at that point, I you know, played this role in COVID that was very unique. And I kind of was ready to think about doing something different. And, you know, elected politics. I thought this, the stars seem to have aligned in terms of this particular job. It comes with policy as a base. Uh, It comes with, um, you know, analysis, financial analysis. Uh, There is politics. Um, but it is a nonpartisan sort of position. And it reminded me a lot of the DFR position. I mean, it had a lot of those same qualities, only it was independent and it was elected. So it it appealed to me because of uh, how similar it was to the role I was in, but those differences were very unique too. But having Beth Pierce's um, encouragement really was something that got me off the block and made me decide to do it.
0: I'm, I'm glad I asked that. I had no idea. So I'm really glad that I um, that I learned that. Thanks for sharing. Um, at the service level, uh, much like in my conversation that I had a few weeks ago on this podcast with Attorney General Charity Clark, your role doesn't appear to have much of a conservation overlap. But there are ways that your office has influence and control over environmental decisions. You've called for a slow and thoughtful transition from the state's financial stake in companies whose activities contribute to global the global climate change. Um, some legislators and advocacy groups are demanding quicker action. So why the slow and thoughtful approach?
3: Yeah, for sure. So as treasurer, like, you know, your first responsibility is on those, on the pension funds and, and on their um, success and their ability to grow and to be around for when teachers and state employees and municipal employees are going to retire and need them. And the pensions are um, in a better position now than they were a few years ago, but they're still facing tremendous unfunded liability um, that we need to continue to work on. And there is a plan to get that retired, but you want to attack, I think this position from a situation of do no harm to the system. Now, If you would have, um, if divestment specifically would achieve a more significant carbon reduction than it would in the situation of Vermont, maybe you can start to debate it in terms of maybe we should do more and do it more quickly. But the, the reality is that we have so few holdings in our pension fund that by getting down to those, what's left that is fossil fuel related, it does become tricky and it can become expensive and it can put the investment returns at risk. So I think for Vermont, we have to approach it in this thoughtful way to make sure we are living our values, make sure we're investing our values, make sure, um, you know, we are, um, setting this goal and, and, and all of that, but also from a financial risk perspective, we need to make sure we understand what is in our portfolio from fossil fuel, We need to sort of have a trajectory as to when we think those investments could potentially become stranded assets as the term is basically um you know the exxon of the world will not be as valuable at some point in the future as they have been in the past few decades due to consumer changes due to government policies restricting um their ability to operate in the same way Um, So for both of those reasons, both living your values, investing your values, but also from a financial risk perspective, it's really important, I think, to continue to have a focus on uh, what's in the portfolio from a fossil fuel perspective and limiting that risk over time. So that's the approach I think that works best for Vermont. Every state and every jurisdiction that has tackled this issue has done it a little bit differently, and they've done it in a way that works for them their size, their investment portfolio, um, their politics. So I think this is an approach that works well for our state.
0: Yeah, and in, in, in what other ways do you see that your office has an impact on the environment?
3: Yeah, so I think the 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 thing that will be really important over the next 10 to 20 years is thinking about how do we pay for the impacts of climate change in Vermont? I saw a study, Last week, that said we were the per capita one of the top states uh, in terms of the cost that we've beared already due to climate change in terms of federal assistance and emergency declarations and whatnot. So, unfortunately, that's going to continue. So, we need to put resources toward, um, you know, mitigation reduction. Um and one of the ways that we can serve a leading role in that, I think, is um just simply on coordination. So one of the first things we did publicly when I took office was we had a, a green financing collaborative where we brought together folks in state government and folks from the private sector that have been working on green energy financing. And the discussion was around how do we take full advantage of the IRA, the federal money that's coming out, uh and we'll get more information on as they continues to proceed. But I think that sort of convening and leadership role and making sure we get as much federal money as we can to, to address the climate crisis will be critical. Another thing that we're doing that we will, that will just be announcing is we're expanding this 10% for Vermont program. So this is a program that was started in 2014 that allows the state treasury to invest up to 10% of the state's cash on hand into, um, the local economy for economic development and job creation and we have a lot more money on hand as of now than we did when this program was first established so we looked at that we decided we can expand the number significantly so we're going to have 85 million dollars of new monies to be able to lend out we have the flexibility to do them at a below market interest rate so they can be really attractive money in this high interest rate environment And the two goals that we've set out to um, achieve with this money are uh, expanded housing and then also climate mitigation efforts. That could be weatherization. uh, It could be um, impact uh, in terms of um, helping finance uh, and helping bring resources to communities that are struggling with the impacts of climate uh, change on their uh, bottom line. Uh, and trying to prevent some of the worst financial impacts of climate as well.
0: Well, you are just settling into the office, uh, but I would be remiss not to ask, are there any plans or goals for the future, either politically or personally?
3: Well, you know, one of the goals that we have is to make sure this um, retirement program that I mentioned at the beginning of the session, um, you know, not just passes the House unanimously, but Passes the, uh, the, sorry, passes the Senate unanimously and it also has to pass the House. And that's going to be a big effort for us over the next five weeks. Um, we think there'll be a lot of excitement for it, um, but we want to make sure it gets over the finish line and gets signed into law. Um, it's a program that would provide a vehicle for retirement to uh, o- over, in some estimates, over 100,000 Vermonters that don't have uh, retirement through their workplace currently. Um, and all the data shows that you're, if you don't have that vehicle through your workplace, if you don't have the automatic payroll deduction, then you're not saving for retirement. Uh, so we have you know, tens of thousands of Vermonters that have almost nothing saved for retirement. They probably like to. They don't know where to start. They don't know how to do it. The Vermont Saves Program would effectively do it for them. And um, in the other states that have done it, they've seen tremendous uptake and, and really great results. Uh, so it's great for the individual. It's great for um, the state because there'll be less people dependent on state benefits in the future to make get by in retirement, and it's great for businesses to be able to offer this at a no cost. Uh, you know, starting point. There's no cost to for the business to participate, um, and it's great for the economy long term too to have more individuals secure in their retirement with more discretionary income. So short term, we have to get that through the house. But then longer term, we are responsible at the treasurer's office for setting that up and being and having it rolled out very successfully in terms of, um, you know, it a very having to be in a very efficient way for businesses to sign up, making sure businesses are well aware that it's coming, making sure we pick good vendors that are responsive and, and will roll this out effectively. So that's something that we're very focused on. And um, I hope that it succeeds legislatively and look forward to working on it if it does.
0: Yeah. So that is S-135 for those who want to look into the bill a little bit more deeply. Um, I want to thank you so much for being a visible and active leader and for taking the time today to chat with me, Mike. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, it's really my pleasure. And um, thank you so much for the invitation and, and for the conversation too.
0: Amazing. See you around. Thank you, Justin. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week, 0.7%. As the global mean temperature rises, various sectors will be adversely impacted, such as agriculture, crime, coastal storms, energy, human mortality, and labor. Taken together, these effects could cost roughly 0.7% of GDP for every 1 degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature on average. Overall, climate change will harm the U.S. economy, even with modest amounts of warming. The U.S. economy would stand to lose between about 1% to 4% of GDP annually by the end of the century through effects to mortality, labor, and energy sector alone under a high emissions scenario. I want to thank our guests, State Treasurer Mike Pichek and Representative Laura Sibilia, as well as Lauren Hurl for assisting me. Next week, I will be joined with Representative Mary Catherine Abdelgani Stone of Burlington, Senator Nader Hashim of Wyndham, and Ray Garofano of Essex, who comprise the MENA, or Middle Eastern North African Caucus, in the Vermont legislature. Until next time, thanks for listening.